All right. Okay, everybody, uh, you all have your study guides. You can take um, those out if uh, you find them useful. And uh, today's topic or question is um, science and faith. We have been, if you've been around this summer, you know we've been wrestling with questions that people ask. So questions that uh, kids ask it was our topic for July. And then we just continued it into August and said, hey, there's questions that grown-ups ask about the Bible and God too. So let's just keep talking about these questions. Uh, as it turns out, they weren't that different. The questions that adults are asking and the questions that kids are asking, um, we just word them differently. And one of the most common questions that I hear is some derivation of uh, are faith and science compatible or are they not? Can you uh, believe in God with all of your heart and also um, trust science and root for science and be pro-science? On the other hand, can you be a, an authentic uh, lover of science or scientist in your field of, of work and hold fast to some supernatural faith in God? And these are very important questions uh, for us to wrestle with. So we're going to do that a little bit today as, as we talk about this question of the compatibility of faith and, uh, and science. So um, if you have your study guides, you can get those ready. Also your Bibles or Bible apps or whatever um, works for you. I'm, I'm going to start this talk in a, in a way that I'm just not, I'm not so sure of. Like I'm a little hesitant to start a talk in the way that I'm about to start this talk. Because the first line that I wrote when I was writing this sermon was, I'm not a scientist, but, uh, which is true. But usually in my experience, when somebody starts a sentence that way, they end it with something really asinine and stupid, right? They, they say something <laughs> regrettable uh, by the end of that sentence. I'm not a scientist, but, you know, like then there's like, but I was cold last winter, this global warming stuff. You know, like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm a little hesitant because, you know, I'm not a scientist, but you know, I saw it on the YouTubes. You know, that kind of thing <laughs> worries me a little bit. Um, but I just got to be honest and tell you that I don't. I don't understand most of what science presents to the world. I don't understand how scientists do their job. I respect how scientists do their job. I appreciate scientists. I love science. I'm kind of a fanboy of science, right? So I know just enough to be dangerous, just enough to enjoy the craft and not really do it for myself, you know. Um, but, but, I, but I do love it. I love how exciting science makes our lives. It's like every day is a new headline. Every day is a new discovery, a new invention, a new cure. Every day is a new update to my Fortnite app, which I appreciate. Many Fortnite players in the house. You all know what Fortnite is. Okay. That did not go over well. All right. So I love Fortnite, but I'm really awful at it. Kind of like science. So, <laughs> so I, love, I love all that science has done for our lives Today, I especially love, this week, the field of medical science. And I'm so proud of the fact that we have several people who call the story home, who spend their lives researching medical breakthroughs and caring for patients and making life more livable. And they come here and worship God on Sundays. They take God with them to work. I'm so proud of that. And this week especially because my own mother who I love more than life itself, was diagnosed with cancer. And this is her second go-around 
with it. She uh, had serious uh, breast cancer eight or nine years ago um, and had surgery, major surgery and uh, major um, chemotherapy radiation um, and barely made it through, but she made it, went into remission, all was well, and then she was diagnosed with papillary thyroid cancer last week. I was terrified. I couldn't really think straight. She went into surgery at Methodist Hospital on Wednesday morning, went home on Thursday morning, cancer-free, and I thank God for medical science. I thank God for her physicians. I thank God for the physicians and the nurses and the nurses' assistants and the hospital staff that go about their work often thanklessly every day to make life a little more livable. I don't always understand science, but I thank God for it. For these reasons and more, I think this question, uh, are science and faith compatible or not, is, is not a very good question. I think this question is a mediocre question at best. It's a poor question. And we can ask much better questions. And I, I think we should be careful not to give in to the low-hanging fruit that's presented to us by the media oftentimes um, that really thrives on the conflict between faith and science, that insists on a narrative that, you know, Christians are all, you know, anti-science, young earth creationists, and the science is a threat to us, and that all good scientists know that there's no possible way that there's a personal loving God in the sky somewhere, that he's just our imaginary friend, that kind of thing. I, I, I want us to push back against that narrative because it's just not true. And the data don't bear it out on one side or the other, frankly. More than half of all scientists in the American Academy of Scientists believe in a higher power of some kind, more than half, all right? And most, if not all, of the Christians that I talk to on a regular basis are kind of feel about science the same way that I do. It's awesome. It's great, you know. And, and so it's not to say there aren't challenges, but I just think there are better questions that we can ask. I think a better question was actually asked two millennia ago by an a upper crust, intellectual, educated, Greco-Roman government official. And it's recorded in the Gospel of John. It's this exchange between Jesus and this Roman official named Pontius Pilate who was overseeing the sentencing of Jesus' trial, trying to decide how this man should be punished for these crimes he supposedly committed of treason and sedition against Rome. And he's trying to negotiate with the angry mob outside, and he goes from out there to inside with Jesus, and they have this conversation. It's a very random, strange conversation that they have, Jesus and Pontius Pilate. And the only way anyone, the only way the gospel writers, in this case John, would have known that this conversation happened is if Jesus told it to John after the resurrection. It's interesting to think about, but it's a random conversation from John chapter 18. And this is what uh, Pilate says. This is starting in verse 37 and 38. Pilate asked Jesus, so you're a king. And this, that's the sedition charge. Nobody can be a king but Caesar, right? You'll get that? You're a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And then in the next verse, he just walks back out and talks to the angry mob again. It's a very heavy, loaded question to drop on some poor sap that's on death row. Like, it's a very, very heady question. What is truth? Like, he's just in the middle of his sentencing here. What is truth? It's a very intense question. But the reason Pilate asked that question is because he was a man of his time. 
And in Greek philosophy at the time, there was this ad nauseum sort of conversation going on among the learned elites about truth, about what they called logos. Actually, the logos was a Greek word that meant logic or reason. Everybody was wondering, everybody was pontificating about what's the logic or reason behind existence? What's the reason behind the universe? Why are we here? And what was happening specifically during Pilate's lifetime, Pontius Pilate's lifetime, was that most learned philosophers were throwing up their hands. The search was too hard and yielded too little in terms of results or, or, or trustworthy data, right? So they, there was nothing that we can lean on here. We've tried to find what the Logos is, and maybe there is a Logos that exists, but we'll never know it. So it was this pre-agnostic kind of a place that people like Pilate were in, where they, they would say, we kind of know that the Logos is out there somewhere. We're not going to know it, so our only responsibility in life is to be happy, is to eat, drink, and be merry. And we should take care of each other, we should look after each other, we should do nice things for each other, but essentially, the highest good is my personal happiness. That was the prevalent worldview in Pilate's day. And the reason I love this question, what is truth, so much, is that the more things have changed over the last 2,000 years, the more they've stayed the same. And the people that I know that are sitting on the fence of faith or that are on the other side of you know, unbelief, skepticism, even cynicism, have come to the same conclusion that those Greek philosophers came to back in Pilate's day. There may be truth out there somewhere. It seems like something about this universe is true, but we'll never know it. So what's the point of searching for it any longer? I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get paid. I'm going to be happy. I'll take care of other people here and there. I'll help out when I can. But essentially, the highest good that I know of, the highest attainable good, is my happiness. What is truth? Is the question still on the minds of many of us here today, still on the minds of many people that we love and care about. So this is the question that I think we should be uh, focusing on more so than, uh, th than are science and faith compatible. The truth is that if you are a person who sits on the fence of faith or if you are very skeptical of religion, you're very skeptical of men like me who stand on stages like this and spout off truth like we know what we're talking about, you're very skeptical of organized religion. If you call yourself non-religious, you are increasingly in the minority, especially if you're a young adult in America. Non-religious, unaffiliated, is the fastest growing segment of religious identity in the United States by far. Why? Well, it's because we've put our faith in one thing after another, our whole lives, if you're a baby boomer or younger, you've been led and told you can put your faith in certain things or certain people, and without fail, every single thing, every single person, every single institution you were told was worthy of your trust has been exposed as corrupt, corrupted by fear-mongering, greedy leaders, usually, who want to control people instead of love them. So every single, like even domestic institutions like marriage and family, right? This is a little closer to home for us, but marriage and family was something we were supposed to be able to depend on. It's our stability in life, and many of you have had your hearts broken by a parent's divorce or your best friend's parent's divorce or maybe your divorce. Some of you, your kid's divorce. The institution of marriage has come under great scrutiny for good reason. It has failed many people. 
other institutions that once people trusted. I know it's hard to believe for many of you sitting here today, but there was a time when the majority of Americans assumed that they could trust their government officials. <laughs> Imagine that. There was a day not long ago when most Americans even trusted their federal government to do the right thing in the interest of the common good. And today we, we live in a time where Government officials, the Senate and House of Representatives, have the lowest level of trustworthiness of any institution in America, according to recent studies. It's not even really that close. They're so low. Uh, 8% of Americans say they trust. I don't know who those 8% are. I need to meet those. Those are the senators and their families. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so anyway, well, we probably got some politicians in the community. I should move on from this. So... <laughs> So all these institutions, government, banks, business leaders, businesses, you know, church. Look, church is racing down that list. Soon one day if we continue having weeks like we had this week where these headlines came out of Pennsylvania that wrecked me and just infuriated me that people bearing God's name, working in his name, would cover up people so obviously doing harm to children. I can't imagine how many thousands of souls went running, not just away from the church, but away from God because of this corruption. So in, it's in this climate of shifting sand where we don't know what can be trusted we don't know what institutions or leaders or people to put our trust in because everything, everybody lets us down and exposes itself as corrupt. It's in that climate that science came riding onto the scene like a knight in shining armor to give us something true. And it swept us off our feet with its claims of objectivity and being lab tested and being unbiased finally something true that we can believe in. And so many of us began putting our faith in what science was telling us. And there's nothing evil or wrong about that. If that's where you are today, God bless you in that. That's awesome. I've been there. Like, that was part of my journey too. If you don't know it, I'm tired of telling the story, but it's part of my journey as well. Like that journey through this intellectual agnosticism where I just trusted science above all else. But more recently... Here's what's happened, and this is fascinating as a cultural phenomenon. More recently, if you've been paying attention, we've started to see the cracks in the foundation of the scientific institution. And we've noticed that some within the scientific community have begun falling prey to the same forbidden fruit that claimed the integrity of institutions that came before. The same forbidden fruit of fear-mongering for the sake of manipulation and control, manipulating headlines for the sake of clickability and garnering more attention for the sake of getting more grant money. It's all there, right? So, I mean, if you can just, if you can just think back with me to your childhood and just kind of roll the tape back all the way up until now, how many different things has Someone in the scientific community reported and has been reported in the paper or on Facebook or wherever. How many different things have you been told are going to kill you tomorrow? And you're still here. All those things were supposed to take us all out. 
overnight. When I was a kid, it was the hole in the ozone layer. I used to look up, oh my gosh, there's a hole in the ozone layer. It's going to kill us all. And, and acid rain was another one when I was a kid. You better wear a hat when it rains or have an umbrella. It's going to burn your hair off. Oh, my gosh. Like all this fear. They want you to be afraid, right? And it doesn't stop there. You probably have some in your mind as well. Microwave and Tupperware will kill you and your children. The sun is coming to get us all. And we used to slather our kids in sunscreen, right? So, And then another study came out and said the sunscreen is going to kill us all. Like sunscreen. Not the sun, the sunscreen. And we're like wiping off our kids, you know, like, oh my gosh, be afraid, right? So don't eat fat. It used to be like, don't eat fat. Then it turns out that the whole no fat thing was a ploy by the sugar industry. We should have been eating more fat all along. Like, what? I could have had so much more fun eating all that fats. But for the sugar industry, ah, sugar, you know, like, be afraid. Be afraid of this, be afraid of that. Why? Because fear drives attention. Human attention follows fear. If you can scare someone, you can control them. If you live in fear, you can be manipulated. What's ironic is that this is the very critique that I've heard since I was in college levied against the church by those who trust science. They've said the church is all about fear, scaring you to death so that you'll give us your lives and your money. If we can scare you enough, then we'll have you where we want you. And if you've been paying attention, you see the same thing happening, not in the entire scientific community at all, not even the majority at all, but in some parts of the scientific community, you see the same corruption. It's almost as if this is not a matter of science versus faith. It's almost as if this is a problem of Humanity, right? People are the common denominator here. Broken, sinful people. And whether it's the church or government or science or anything else, you see the same kinds of uh, trends. So what is truth is the question I want to wrestle with today because I think it's, it's a better question to ask for three reasons I'm just going to bring up real quickly and then I'll be done. The first reason I think that what is truth is a better question to ask is because you can't, with any integrity, do science without faith. The idea of science versus faith is one of the greatest misnomers. That doesn't even make sense, that you have science over here and faith over there. Science is, in its essence, an act of faith. It is a leap of faith. And I'm not saying, like, it's just like religion. That's not, what I'm, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. I know there's people that love science here going, oh, here we go. Listen, it just is. To do science means you trust that the laws of nature as they were yesterday, they will be today, they will be tomorrow. Because you need that consistency, the constancy, the regularity of nature to do science. You can't trust the results that science yields without the regularity of nature. And we have no reason to believe, really, that the regularity of nature will continue. We have no reason. There's no guarantee. There's no, there's no, nothing you can lean on there to say that well, this will continue. It just does, and we trust it, and we live according to that. Right? All of us do. It's a leap of faith. So it's not just that. It's it's the idea that when you trust the regularity of nature, and you you have some findings, you find you discover something. The the notion that there's anything discoverable out there, that there's anything absolutely true to be known, is also itself an, a leap of faith. 
When we do science, we trust that there are answers out there. When we do science, we trust that those answers can be knowable in a, in a cogent, coherent way by the human brain. And this is not a given. I'm not insulting any humans here, but it's not a given that the human brain is a reliable source of truth or receptacle of truth, right? Like, it's not, it's not a given. In fact, people who are strict evolutionists, now, if you've been around long enough, you know that I'm pretty cool with, with evolution, and, and you can come back at 5 o'clock for the Q&A service. We'll talk more about it. But people that are strict evolutionists, in other words, evolution is like the thing. Like, it's the theory. It's the, it's the one unifying theory that, that explains all of life. And if you're a strict evolutionist, then you have to come to terms with the fact that your belief is that the human brain is the result of many, many, many years of evolution, and it has evolved not based on facts. It's not evolved based on truth. The human brain has evolved based on survival. And so whatever you think is true is really just your brain tricking you to think stuff is true so that you can survive better. Right? So every truth claim humans make is the, is the result of that kind of evolutionary process, which means that there's nothing you think is true that really is. It's all an illusion, which would mean, therefore, if you're following my line of thinking here, would mean, therefore that what we come to know through the work of science is also under scrutiny, or it should be, because there's nothing we know that is really known. It's just a survival mechanism, and so, so is science. And so the idea that the human mind can know things in a meaningful way is itself an act of faith. To drive this first point home, I thought I would uh, bring on uh, this video uh, featuring a, a mathematics professor at Oxford University who's also a Christian. His name is uh, Dr. John Lennox, and I uh, hope you enjoy this clip. So that's the first point. Very briefly to the second point. God is three in one. Is it a mystery? Yes, it is. And am I allowed to tell a little story? Yeah, oh, well, I think we should, we yeah, want yeah, to get to move so it many, on. Yeah. Okay. But do tell the story. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I was talking to uh, about a thousand scientists, and a man came up to me afterwards, a physicist, and he said, that was very interesting, all that talk about God, but he said, do you know, I detect you're a Christian. And I said, you're... <laughs> very astute gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I said. I said, you're pretty sharp. And he said... Tell <laughs> He said, come off it, he said. Now look, as a Christian, you're obliged to believe that God is a triunity. That Jesus was God and man. And he said, now, come on, you're a mathematician at Oxford. This is absurd. Can you explain it to me? Well, I said, can I ask you a question first? He said, sure. So I said, tell me, what is consciousness? And he thought for a second, and then he said, I don't know. I said, that's okay, let me try an easier one. What is energy? Well, he said, I'm a physicist, I can measure energy, I could use it. I said, you know, that's not my question, what is it? He said, I don't know. Oh, I said, that's very interesting. You don't know. Tell me, I said, um, do you believe in consciousness? Yes, he said. Do you believe in energy? Yes, he said. So I said, you believe in these two things, you don't know what they are. I said, should I write you off as an intellectual? <laughs> and he said, please don't. 
And I said, but that's exactly what you were going to do with me five minutes ago. Now I said, if you don't know what energy is, and nobody does, and if you don't believe that, you physicists, read Richard Feynman. <laughs> if you don't know what energy is, don't be surprised if energy, light, gravity, and consciousness are a mystery. Don't be surprised if you're going to get an element of this in God. You're bound to get it. But now I pushed him a bit further, you see. And I said, why do you believe in these things if you don't know what they are? And that was a bit difficult. So being kind chap, I tried to help him out. And I said, um, <laughs> you believe in these things because of their explanatory power as concepts. And he said, that's exactly right. And I said, look, of course I can't explain to you how God became human. But I said, it's the only explanation that makes sense of the evidence as I see it. All right. Okay. <laughs> if you're going to applaud him, I expect an applause at the end of this sermon. All right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't. All right. So, uh, so that's, the, that's the first reason I think we should be asking about truth and not this silly competition supposedly between science and faith. Because whatever we believe as Christians, it's because not of their absolute ironclad proof. It's because of their explanatory powers, what we see in the world around us. And that really brings us to the second reason why. And the second point uh, after you can't do faith without science, or you can't do science without faith, is that you can't have faith without science or without the scientific method. And this is a bit more of an abstract concept. Uh, the first one's pretty obvious, but this one was a little bit more fun to work with for me this week. But I need you to think back, way back to, uh, to your middle school years uh, when you learned the scientific method. If you went to private school, it was your uh, elementary years when you learned about the scientific method. Just think back with me um, about, that, about that as I, as I share this next point with you. I think, I think it's not a coincidence that science was birthed out of monotheistic religion. I think it's not coincidental that Jewish and Christian and Muslim religions gave rise to science. And I think that not only because of the concept of absolute truth, which is an important one, uh, considering what we just talked about in the first point, but I, I think that's true because long before science was a thing, what we see in the traditions of these monotheistic movements is the scientific method at work already in an informal way, not in a controlled environment, obviously. It wasn't perfect, but you see elements of the scientific method playing out. That's how doctrines are formed. That's how we decide what is highest and best to believe in. That's how we try to define who God is. Is, is by following the, the scientific method, what later became known as the scientific method. So think back to that time you learned about it and the six steps involved and, and, uh, and, and just follow along with me as you, as you hearken back to your beloved middle school science class <laughs> um, when you made an observation about the world around you and then you formed a question based on that observation and then you formed a hypothesis to answer that question, an educated guess was the definition I learned um, in my public school forever about uh, hypotheses. 
uh, was an educated guess. And then what do you do? You test your hypothesis. You test it for viability, for truth. You experiment. And then you analyze the data. See what your test yielded. And then you come to a conclusion and you report your findings. Listen, uh, this is how faith works. This is how people criticize Christianity for having 38,000 denominations. How can it really be true if they can't even agree? 38,000 different things. Look, those 38,000 denominations, it's not our finest quality, right? I understand as a Christian it is a little bit uh, shameful that we're so divided, but those are all the results of this kind of testing and analyzing and reproving and hypothesizing. Like, that's... That's what's happened here as we try to strive for what is best and what is highest. Not all churches split over what color the carpet's going to be or who the choir director's going to be. Like, that's not what it's about, right, usually. <laughs> so, um, so uh, you know, I think, I think when we look at Christianity, you know, we make, we make an observation when we decide to be a Christian. We make an observation. It starts with the notion that, look, if God is real, then he must fundamentally be good. If God is God, this is just a philosophical statement, right? A truism sort of. If God is really God, if he's supreme, he must be supremely good. He must represent or embody the highest moral good, which I think we all would probably agree, whether you're Christian or agnostic or atheist or whatever, we would all agree that the highest possible moral good could be summed up in one four-letter word, love. Love. Self-giving, sacrificial, forgiving, gracious love. And so it would stand to reason that if God is real and if God is good, then God must be love. So the question we form is what would such a God look like? And our hypothesis as Christians, very simply, is that if God is real and if he's good and if he's love then we have the perfect image of what that God who represents the highest possible good looks like. That would look like Jesus on the cross, forgiving the men who nailed him there in real time and forgiving all the sins of all the world, dying as he loved the people who killed him. And not only that, not only the self-sacrificial nature of that love, but this willingness to conquer death itself so that we need not despair. This is the embodiment of love. And the Christian life that flows from that decision, from that hypothesis, I should say, is the experiment that is the test Every time you gather in small groups, every time we gather for worship, when I ask a question in a sermon, like this is all of us testing what we believe, whether it's true or not. And we may tweak along the way, like we might have been wrong about this and we tested, we were wrong. That's not the highest and moral possible good. That doesn't reflect God's ideals and so we'll, we'll turn. Women in ministry comes to mind, y'all. Like there were centuries where women were not allowed to lead the church. 
And some thoughtful Christians were unsettled by that at certain points in history, and they began to test another hypothesis that maybe this God of ours creates men and women equally in his image and equips some women just as he equips some men and calls them to lead. And maybe as we test that hypothesis, we look in Scripture, and there's evidence of women leading in Scripture. And we, we test the fruits of a woman's labor and leadership as she leads a church, and there's fruitfulness in her leadership. And we, we pray about it, and we talk to each other about it, and we, we continue to test that hypothesis. But when the data are there, we analyze them and draw a conclusion. Women, women are called and equipped by this God of ours to lead, just as men are. And that's why we have... Pastor Gio, centuries ago, decades ago, some places today we wouldn't have Pastor Gio. But we're testing these hypotheses all the time. This is how faith works. I'm not really sure you can live an active faith without the scientific method or some version of it. I love this passage from uh, Romans 12. This is actually sort of the passage that's nearest to my heart. This is one that um, I lean on, uh, leaned on through my conversion. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. 1 and 2 are great. I'm just going to start with verse 2, um, where Paul writes, Don't conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then he says, check this out. He says, then you will be able to test and approve. What is the good will of God? Then you will be able, when your mind is transformed, you'll be able to test and approve what is the good and perfect and pleasing will of God. All right. Those are uh, two of the reasons why uh, I think that what is truth is a better question than, uh, than are science and faith compatible. The third and final reason why is that the real conflict is not science versus faith. The real conflict is truth versus ignorance. Science and faith are partners in this shared war on ignorance. Ignorance leads to violence oftentimes. Ignorance leads to apathy oftentimes, or oppression, or poverty, science and faith share a, a hatred of ignorance. Because the God that we serve, the God that we seek, loves knowledge. He loves insight. He loves wisdom. He compels those who believe in him to seek more understanding. And this is this is obvious throughout Scripture. Jesus builds on what the Old Testament says about loving God. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, just like they said in the Old Testament. But he adds this last part, love the Lord your God with all of your mind. The writer of this proverb in chapter 1 says, an intelligent man, or I would add an intelligent woman, will listen and continue learning. And the psalmist writes, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. There is no room for ignorance and apathy in the heart of a person who delights in God. If you delight in God, you want to know more about him and how he created all of this. And God's not up in heaven going, oh, I hope they don't find out. That's not who God is. He's hoping we find out because he delights in us and wants to be known by us. Every time there's a headline where we discover something else about how creation happened, he's up in heaven going, oh, they finally got it. 14 billion years in, they finally picked it up. 
He delights in us. And we should delight in him. To delight in God is to study his works. In the last service at 945, we had a very emotional baptism. A young woman named Afshin was baptized here at 945, and, and she wrote a testimony to share with everybody in the church. And she wrote this not knowing what we were going to talk about today. Um, it fascinated me when she sent it to me. And this is what she said. I think we'll have it on the screen. No? Okay, we won't, but y'all just listen in. She said, this is my reason for baptism. I have decided to be baptized today to affirm my newfound realization that Jesus is my Lord and Savior and my advocate in this world. Until just a short time ago, I was a proud atheist who had been raised in a warm and loving Muslim home. In the past year, when faced with challenges, I reflected on scriptures that my prayerful in-laws had sent me in various times of trial. And one night, reading them aloud, completely without expectation, I was so immensely moved by a promise. I knew at that moment the message was God's promise, nothing of my own mind. And listen to this. Since then, I have been exploring my faith, learning more, and reconciling years of skepticism. But the unwavering love and grace that Jesus provides is so great that while I can't begin to understand why or how, I just want to share that love and grace with everybody that I can. That's called reporting your findings. That's the sixth step of the scientific method, which Christians call evangelism. It's a very boring word for report your findings. I just want to share that love and grace with everyone I can. I'm so thankful to him and for this day to formally commit my life to him. Here's what happens. People grow up in church or around church. Too often, people like me teach you what to think about God. We never teach you how to think about God. We teach you facts and Bible verses and we give you stickers for memorizing the shortest psalm you can find or whatever. <laughs> and you go off to college as you should and you learn as you should. You think critically about everything else but God. Because we haven't taught you how. Listen. Think critically about God. Ask questions. Seek the truth while filtering out all those other voices on the secular side and on the religious side. Seek the truth. Rejoice in what you find. Trust that God will lead you through that process. God can take whatever truth you find. He's good with it. Seek the truth. And I believe and I trust and I hope that that honest journey will lead you to the same place that it led Afshin, and that it led your pastor just over five years ago. Let's pray together. God, I just thank you for your patience and the way that you delight in us 
even as we wander through this life. I pray especially for those in this room right now or those watching online who are on the verge of making a decision that might change their life forever. And I pray they would step forward in courage to just for a season live this hypothesis that you are real, that you are love, that you're made known to the whole world through Jesus, and that your love led you to lay your life down in a painful and humiliating way for the sake of all humankind. We love you. And thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.